Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, December 3rd at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Paige Winfield-Cunningham of the Washington Post. Hi, Julie. Later in this episode, we'll hear from KHN's Julie Appleby about the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. It's about a boy, a bicycle accident, and a really big bill. But first, the news. Okay, since we last spoke, President Trump has not conceded the election, but he has allowed the transition to proceed. So what do we know about how President-elect Biden plans to address the pandemic and who will lead the new administration's efforts? Jump in, Alice. You've been writing about this. Sure. Yes. A lot is already happening. And now that Biden has announced who is leading his national security team and his economic team, the next up on the agenda is the health team. And so we are expecting those names early next week, Um, although we are attempting to break the news sooner, as I'm sure we all are. As has been true with a lot of Biden's other picks, you know, he really favors people he has known for a long time and is personally close to. And so we are watching a lot of the people who have been working with the campaign and transition on developing the health policies that he'll push and especially the coronavirus response policies. And so a lot of those folks are going to have some healthcare role in the new administration, exactly which role is still being debated. Um, but we are certain that former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy is going to have some kind of leading role. He has been briefing Biden on the pandemic since back in the earliest days this year and has really helped write the new administration's plans for how to deal with it and has been one of the most prominent faces communicating about it. He's briefed lawmakers. He has talked to mayors. He has gone on TV to explain how the new administration will do things differently. And of course, they very much want to do things differently, especially considering how bad things are getting right now. So they want to surge testing. They want to improve contact tracing. They want to, you know, have a smooth rollout of a vaccine and put a huge effort into convincing people to take the vaccine because that's which we'll get to in a a huge concern. Yes. So a lot of plans underway. So the leading contender for a while, I guess the two names that we heard most for HHS secretary were Vivek Murthy um, and Michelle Lujan Grisham, the governor of uh, New Mexico, who'd served in the House and who'd been the health secretary there. But apparently she's not going to be it. We, we, we're kind of, it's we, not we kind of certain. know that now, right? Well, no, we, do, we don't know for sure. But yes, her star has dimmed a bit in recent days. And uh, there has been more consideration for a different governor, uh, Governor Gina Raimondo, um, who 
the Biden team vetted over the summer uh, to be his running mate. And they were very impressed with her. We reported yesterday and she has been now under consideration for a couple different roles, including HHS secretary. They feel that governors are very well positioned to run HHS. A lot of past HHS secretaries have been governors because you sort of have that experience managing a big bureaucracy. And there are concerns that Vivek Murthy, even though he's a well-respected medical professional, uh, does not have that kind of experience. I would just add bringing in former Obama folks is really in line, of course, with what Biden's doing in other areas as well. And there are a couple of uh, people that became kind of prominent during the rollout of the ACA and under the Obama administration. I think that I've also heard are kind of in the mix for top roles at at CMS or HHS. One of those is uh, Mandy Cohen, who's the health secretary in North Carolina. Um, And she did a lot of work at at CMS. Um, Kristen Link Young, I've also heard. So and, and of course, then, you know, we have like old timers. Uh, or, well, I shouldn't say old timers. That sounds derogatory. But like people have been around for a long time, like Zeke Emanuel. I think his name comes up often when you're talking about, you know, who could be maybe an, an advisor in the White House. You know, we should also not leave this before we mention that some people in other posts also have significant health experience. Ron Klain, who's going to be the chief of staff, ran the Ebola organization response for the uh, Obama administration in 2014. And Neera Tanden, who's been uh, nominated to, to head the Office of Management and Budget, although they there's a lot of blowback on that nomination. Basically, you know, was the, the head of Center for American Progress, but also worked on health policy for both uh, Obama and for Hillary Clinton when she was running for president back in 2008, not just 2016. So, I, you know, I wonder what it will mean to have, you know, health experts, not just at HHS, but other places in the government. And and not not only the folks you mentioned, and not only having specific health experience, but it's also notable that a lot of the folks on the econ team have said publicly that their philosophy is that there's no way to save the economy, shore up the economy, fix the economy without first thoroughly dealing with the pandemic. And that's sort of different than the philosophy we've had under the Trump administration, where they feel that the public health measures and what is needed to shore up the economy are in conflict. So I think that that's really important, too. You see the incoming government feel that the only way to help folks get back to work is to address the pandemic, even if that means restrictions that are economically painful in the short term. It's not the economy versus the pandemic. It's the fix the pandemic and fix the economy. Right. So one of the big complications in the transition is that the Senate is so closely divided, it can't organize for next year because we don't know which party is the majority and we won't know until after the January 5th Georgia runoffs. Um, That means confirmation hearings, not just for secretaries, but for important but next level officials like heads of the FDA and CMS um, are likely to be pushed back too. How much is that going to hurt efforts to fight COVID-19? Well, Biden has been pushing the Senate to, you know, start the ball rolling on some of these hearings now and has gotten some mixed reception to those calls. But it's not unusual. In the past, Congress has begun the process before the inauguration. So anyone who says otherwise that I have seen claims otherwise is not correct. Yeah, Um, Normally, they have nominations teed up so that on January 20th, right after the inauguration, they approve usually at least a handful of cabinet picks. It would be very unusual for them not to have the the committee work done before the inauguration. Of course, it's worth remembering Congress technically comes back. The new Congress starts January 3rd and the new president gets sworn in January 20th. So there's always a couple of weeks 
in advance to to do that. But yeah, there you know, in twenty sixteen, there were December confirmation hearings for some of these folks. Right, that, exactly. That doesn't seem to be happening here. And especially in the middle of a pandemic, you want the team ready to go immediately and not have uncertainty about who's going to be in charge. And I think that's factoring into Biden's decisions on who to nominate because you know, for example, it took more than a year to confirm Vivek Murthy to the much less <laughs> powerful position of Surgeon General in the Obama administration. There was opposition to his uh, nomination, both from most Republicans and a handful of conservative Democrats. Most of those conservative Democrats are no longer in the Senate, but Joe Manchin still is. So I think that they don't want these dra- long, dragged out fights um, well, that we've it- seen before. It's, it's, it's like another wrinkle in this whole process because, of course, the transition uh, certification, the delays in that because of the Trump administration's refusal to certify, backed things up initially in, in November. And, of course, that was a really important step. When did that happen? Two weeks ago um, where they were able or was that last week? I don't even remember. But they were able to actually start, um, you know, the Biden team was actually able to get get clearances and start viewing classified information. And they were able to also, of course, that allows them to start like the vetting process and such for the appointees, which, as we all know, takes a really long time. So it's probably really frustrating that now they've kind of got this hiccup in the Senate, which is going to further delay things. And of course, the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee isn't going to have a chairman after January 3rd because Lamar Alexander is retiring, gave his farewell speech yesterday. And it's not clear who's going to take over for him, particularly if the Republicans maintain uh, a majority that, you know, there'll be a 52 or a 51 seat majority. So it could back things up for a while. So before we are uh, we leave the personnel issue, we should probably note the departure of Scott Atlas from the White House. Atlas was perhaps the most controversial of all the controversial COVID advisors to President Trump. He wasn't there long, but he's going to leave quite a legacy behind, isn't he? Dr. Atlas is someone who was quite close to the president, who the president really trusted and who seemed to have quite a lot of influence over his thinking about the pandemic in the last month or so, but who most public health experts thought was really unqualified qualified for the job. He had no particular training in public health or an infectious disease. And he promoted a lot of ideas that were really at odds with what public health officials have been telling us about best practices. He encouraged not entirely explicitly, but pretty clearly advocates of theories that it would be better for COVID to spread more widely and for the public to develop herd immunity through infection, which is something that uh, most leading public health experts believe would be a terrible thing to have happen. So it is uh, sort of noteworthy that his tenure is ending this person who I think gave the president probably some bad advice and who uh, really was unqualified having this very prominent role in shaping the response to the pandemic at a time when things have gotten extremely bad. Well, yeah. And I'm just remembering back to October, I think it was, when the writers of this Great Barrington Declaration, which I know that we've talked about on the podcast before, I think Atlas actually invited them to come in and kind of present this plan or idea to Alex Azar. And, you know, I think that was kind of another mark against him that it seemed as though he was really embracing this really controversial declaration, which, you know, while it made some important points about the damage of lockdowns, it also was condemned by a lot of public health experts by saying that it's irresponsible to try to aim for herd immunity just through allowing the virus to spread through the community. And this seemed to be an idea that Atlas really uh, embraced. I mean, I just think he can leave the White House in the remaining days of the administration, but I think we are seeing the fruits of his counsel all around the country. Just a lot of public 
public officials seeming to sort of give up on attempting to contain the virus. And, you know, whether they phrase it this way or not, they are sort of letting it run rampant and working towards uh, herd immunity. And I think, you know, with the news of the vaccine on the horizon, with, you know, potentially shots starting to go out within the next few weeks, um, depending on how things go, um, you know, there's also concern that people will see that news and think, oh, well, a vaccine's on the way. I can just stop being cautious when that is not the case for most people. It'll be many, many, many months before a vaccine is available. I also think there's this irony in the Trump administration approach to the pandemic where on the one hand, I think that the president and people close to him have really been emphasizing the vaccine as the solution to this problem and, you know, have marshaled a lot of resources to try to support the pharmaceutical industry and the development of vaccines to try to provide financial support for uh, manufacturing and distribution of vaccines even prior to their approval. Obviously, there's been some reporting that there's been political pressure on the FDA to streamline its approval processes. I think that the president talks about the vaccine as something that is, you know, he hopes will be part of his legacy, that he helped develop this vaccine in record time. And it does seem from the early evidence that the vaccine candidates are quite promising. We don't have one that's sort of gotten across the finish line yet, and we don't have all the final data, so we shouldn't be overly optimistic, but certainly um, there's a lot of good news in the vaccine space. And of course, the reason why a vaccine is useful is that what it does is it enables people to develop immunity to a disease to avoid getting it without having to get sick. And so it's just very strange to have this administration that on the one hand is so vaccine focused in its strategy, I really think it's kind of the major basket that they've been putting eggs in. And at the same time to be listening to an advisor and to outside people who are saying that the solution to this problem is just to let the disease spread around the country and for people to develop immunity by getting sick. These things are pretty much intention. If you really thought that you were going to have an effective vaccine, why would you want people to get sick who didn't need to get sick? And so I feel like in some ways the vaccines coming in as Atlas comes out feels uh, kind of like a fitting uh, set of timing. And I would just point out, although I don't want to belabor this too much, that one of the theories or behind the herd immunity strategy was that you keep the very vulnerable people sort of locked up and protected, basically everybody over age 65, and you let it run in the rest of the population. And what we're seeing, of course, is what we'd seen earlier is when there's a lot of community spread, which there is right now, it gets into those nursing homes and assisted living facilities and other places where really vulnerable people live. It's just people, you know, you can't keep all the workers locked up too, and people go in and out. And now we're seeing a lot of spread um, in those among those vulnerable populations again. All right, well, we'll get to the vaccine in a minute. But first, uh, we haven't talked about a COVID relief bill from Congress for quite a while, mostly because there hasn't been anything to talk about. There's still not that much to talk about. But at least there are efforts again, now that Congress is back from the Thanksgiving break. There was a bipartisan proposal, which I think I pointed out on Twitter gently does not usually turn into anything. But now we have some backing for the bipartisan proposal. Is there any real hope for this? Or do we think Congress is still just sort of spinning in circles? I am cynical, (laughs) having covered Congress. And so I always bet on things not (laughs) working out, Um, especially because President Trump is not exactly throwing his political weight behind this and calling for it. He's barely said anything about the pandemic at all. He's mostly been fighting over the election results <laughs> um, on on his Twitter feed and in public statements and, and saying very little about the pandemic and uh, a potential relief bill. I think that the bipartisan proposal does hit 
you know, the basics of what both sides are demanding. You know, Republicans want these liability shields for companies. Democrats want funding for um, state and local health folks to be able to do more testing and contact tracing. You know, both of those are in there. It's sort of like not enough for each side, but some. And Biden has said that, you know, he wants them to pass something, but whatever they pass will just be a down payment on a further relief effort that that he'll push when he comes into office. But I'll believe it when I see it. I will say I think what the response we're seeing from Pelosi and Schumer is definitely a shift from where they were at this fall. Like they're showing a readiness or a willingness to kind of come to the negotiating table. I mean, through the fall, they had insisted on was a one point five trillion or one point seven trillion or some some one point nine trillion. Maybe it was I don't all the numbers. It was a lot of money. It was I think it was it was closer to two and and McConnell was offering closer to half a trillion. Right, right. But at some point, I think in the fall, the White House stepped in and had actually offered to negotiate closer to what the number that the Democrats wanted. And I think there were probably more political considerations going on in the fall before the election. But what you see now is you know, Pelosi and Schumer are saying, we think that this 900 billion bill should be a starting point for negotiations. So now it looks like it's going to end. But then you saw McConnell come out yesterday and say, absolutely not. So who knows what's going to happen with it? I I think it's worth adding to this discussion that while a whole lot of important things from the relief bill that Congress passed last spring expired at the end of the summer, a lot more things are going to expire at the end of the year if Congress doesn't act before then. That includes regular unemployment payments for many people, in addition to the added on unemployment that expired in the summer. Unemployment for an estimated 12 million Americans expires the day after Christmas. Also protections for renters from evictions and homeowners for foreclosures and abeyances for student loan payments. This could really turn into a a gigantic mess in January if they don't do anything, couldn't it? It's kind of wild to me. I mean, the outcome of the presidential election could have even been different if President Trump had really championed getting this all this relief out and, and these programs to help people stay in their homes and stay in their jobs. Sometimes I think about that and whether that would have really made a difference um, earlier this year. People said that was one reason Pelosi may have been hesitant because she didn't want to hand him something like that before the election as well. Right. And now we have this deadlock. There's already just so much suffering, so many families reporting going hungry and, you know, getting evicted. And it's set to get a lot worse unless Congress can get something done. Yeah, it's hard to tell which lines are longer, the ones for, you know, people to get tested or the ones for the food pantry. I also think there's, you know, whatever the challenges are of passing something now, the idea that this is a down payment on a larger stimulus, I think, is something that I am somewhat skeptical of. I think to the degree that the politics of passing a stimulus bill are bad now, I am not sure that they get better with a Democratic president because I think, you know, the Democrats in Congress uh, want to do something. And you know, of course, they want to do something bigger. Now they're willing to compromise and do something smaller. But I think most of the reluctance uh, in passing one of these bills is really coming from Republicans in Congress who I think are more concerned about the fiscal implications of extending all this aid for so long. And I think they may be even less enthusiastic about this idea when there's a Democratic administration, uh, or, which they may want to thwart in some ways or which they may not want to get credit for giving people a lot of money. Yes, Republicans never care about the deficit more than when there's a Democrat in the White House. 
<laughs> so let us talk about the COVID vaccines, the coming COVID vaccines. Since we last met, both Moderna and Pfizer have applied to the FDA for emergency use authorizations, which could come in the next two or three weeks if there are no glitches. And yesterday, the UK granted an emergency use authorization for the Pfizer shot. So there's definitely progress. Meanwhile, the CDC earlier this week put out its recommendations for who should get the vaccines first, healthcare workers, no surprise, and staff and residents in nursing homes and other congregate living facilities. This all sounds very smooth, but there are an awful lot of things that have to go exactly right for this to work, correct? Yeah, there are. Although I will say I was when I was looking at the front page of our paper this morning, there was a headline that said the beginning of the end of the pandemic. And I thought like, yeah, I've been writing a lot about this recently and there are a lot of obstacles. But I'm encouraged in that I I feel like I'm hearing like a variety of health experts express optimism that life is going to feel somewhat normal by this summer. And that, of course, is assuming that kind of this sequence of events happens. But the the, sort of the next events that we're looking for are these two meetings are going to be held on the 10th and the 17th. And then they're saying that within hours, the FDA could provide this emergency authorization for the Moderna and the Pfizer and then have the doses shipped out immediately. I think a big question, and this just kind of tying in the, the question of what Congress does, is a lot of states are saying they need funding, additional funding for the distribution. Uh, Cuomo talked about this yesterday and a couple of other governors. Of course, we know the government is already paying for the actual doses of the vaccine. But then you have the question of the cost to transport it, to store it. We've, you know, heard a lot about how, you know, it's got to be stored. Or I think the Pfizer, Pfizer vaccine has to be stored. Or maybe it's the Moderna. One of them has to be like in... No, it's the Pfizer, the Pfizer has to be has in to like... Be really, really Yeah, cold. in a very cold environment or actually spoil within hours. So there's those challenges. And this is probably another... This is another thing Congress is considering in terms of, you know, adding funding uh, to what if they do end up passing a bill. So that's sort of like the optimistic part of it. The pessimistic part of it is, um, you know, when you look at past efforts by states to distribute vaccines, we actually have a pretty poor track record. And there's been huge variance between the states in terms of vaccination rates. So when you go back to uh, 2009 and the H1N1 vaccination rates, uh, I think only were around like two in 10 nationally or something. It was pretty bad and it varied a lot. You saw particularly low rates in the southern states. And that's a lot of the time because people are more likely to be uninsured and they're more therefore more less likely to visit the doctor, which is where they would be encouraged to get a vaccine. Um, And then even with the seasonal flu last year, um, you saw, I think, only around 40 percent or so vaccination rates, which, of course, is much, much lower than what you need for that herd immunity, the 60 to 70 percent. So it's obvious from history that that this is going to be a steep climb for some of the states, particularly those with worse health indicators and lower rates of insurance. So there are two different potential problems here. Too many people chasing too little vaccine and too many people who don't want to take the vaccine because they don't trust it. Um, To address the latter problem, Maryland Democratic congressman and briefly presidential candidate John Delaney, is suggesting paying people $1,500 each to get their COVID shots. He pointed out in an op-ed in the Washington Post this week that Congress will likely be doing a stimulus about when the vaccine is widely available anyway. So you might as well ask people to do something patriotic in exchange for the money that you were going to give them. He says it would cost an estimated $383 billion, which is a lot of money, but maybe not in the context of an economic stimulus bill. This is definitely thinking outside the box. Any Any chance of it or something like it happening? I don't know. I think that would run into a lot of like legal and ethical (laughs) hurdles. Um, I've seen a lot of people 
suggesting things to help encourage people to take the vaccines. We have a bunch of former presidents saying that they will get vaccinated on camera in order to encourage trust of people in both parties. You have a lot of other leading people, both in politics and in pop culture, saying the same. You know, people often reference Elvis getting his, his shot. polio shot. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and the difference that made. And so, um, you know, I personally think that Dolly Parton, who helped fund the Moderna vaccine, is the Elvis of our times and would be the person I would nominate for that role. I would definitely take the Dolly vaccine myself. So, <laughs> um, no, but the baseline vaccine hesitancy was already so bad. And the um, level of hesitancy around this particular vaccine, given how much pressure the White House has put on companies and researchers to rush it out, um, pressure that is still ongoing. We had, you know, some browbeating of the FDA this week. Um, so At the White House. Exactly. And so that, you know, obviously encourages people to be more suspicious um, if they feel that corners are being cut or if it's being rushed to secure President Trump's legacy rather than to help people not die. I think that in a weird way, just the FDA was a bit in a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of a situation. It was so odd to like have the development of this vaccine take place right, right at the same time as the presidential election. And it's like on one hand, because of the things the president had said, if they had moved earlier ahead of the election, it would have looked like, politi- you know, politically motivated. On the other hand, now people are griping because Great Britain has approved the Pfizer vaccine and they're saying, well, why didn't we move faster? And so you have the questions of, well, may- I don't know, maybe they could have moved faster and we could have avoided more deaths. So it's just a really weird timing and interesting political position for them to be in. Although it still looks like the Pfizer vaccine is going to get approved within, you know, a week or two of Great Britain. In the long run, it's not going to be a marked difference in how soon they're approved. Right. Margot, you could say something. As everyone has said, there are sort of uh, some limitations on what the government probably is going to do to compel people to get this vaccine. But I think that we may see other actors putting pressure on people to get vaccinated that we don't necessarily see with the flu vaccine or with other kinds of vaccines. You know, there's been a lot of talk of employers potentially requiring their workers to get the vaccine vaccine. So we see that in the healthcare setting with flu shots. You know, if you work in a hospital and a lot of hospitals, uh, you either have to get a flu shot or you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork and wear a mask all the time and like deal with a lot of hassle because there's a view that, you know, if you're working with vulnerable people, you don't want to be in a position where you might pass along flu shot. So that that's kind of a precedent in the healthcare setting. But I think there's a lot of discussions among other kinds of corporations, you know, even uh, just office, you know, I work in an office with lots of other people. I, I don't know what the New York Times is planning, but you could imagine a company like mine saying, look, you know, we it's not fair to our other employees to have unvaccinated people here. And as soon as we are able to get the vaccine, uh, we're going to require you to take it. So there may be some of these kind of new pressures from private sector actors uh, from potentially from states requiring children to be vaccinated for school attendance, which is another uh, kind of vaccine pressure that we see that's been very effective in increasing the number of kids who have all kinds of childhood vaccines. But there are also these like special challenges with this vaccine, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine require two doses. So uh, the logistics of like getting people to take the vaccine are harder than with a flu shot. Generally with a flu shot, you go in once, you get the shot, you're done. Uh, this is one where you need to get one vaccine, one injection, and then you have to come back again in a specified period of time to get a booster. And you're not really immune, according to the evidence so far, until you've gotten both of those doses. So all of the challenges that we've talked about, the logistics, the keeping it cold, the communicating with people, I think does get sort of amplified by 
this second dose problem. And uh, I want to talk about this more uh, with my extra credit, but these vaccines seem to have some severe side effects for some people. And so that also could be a challenge. You know, people get the first dose and they feel sick. Maybe they won't want to come back for the second one. I think all of that is going to add extra challenge. And I think there's going to have to be really clear communication about it and really clear kind of tracking and logistical management to make sure that people who get that first dose are brought back in to get the second one. Well, and to add to that too, like if you look at how the flu, the seasonal flu vaccine is distributed, and I said this earlier, it's typically when people are just going in for their annual doctor's visit. So I think like one third flu vaccines are through a medical provider and one fourth are at pharmacies. And if people aren't actually coming in, I mean, I think visits have gone up again since the lockdowns of the spring, but I don't think people are still seeing their providers at the same rate that they used to. So that kind of layers yet another complication where we're in the middle of a pandemic, people aren't seeing their providers as much, but that's kind of the natural place where they would be encouraged to get the vaccine. And they aren't going to the pharmacies as much. I know I've been trying to have my drugs delivered and I was kind of annoyed that I ended up having to actually go into the pharmacy to get a flu shot. I couldn't find any place that would do a drive through. So I think that people talk so much about the vaccine hesitancy. And I do think that that is a real problem. And we see it with other vaccines, too. But I think it's important. There's going to be a lot of people who are really motivated to get this vaccine. I mean, this is a scary new illness. As the disease spreads across the country, more and more Americans are going to know someone who got really sick or maybe someone who died. I think people are sick of being locked up at home, not being able to see their elderly relatives. I mean, we're all suffering uh, under the restrictions associated with this disease. And so I do think that even though there are people who may be reluctant to get the vaccine or people who may struggle to get it just because they don't have a place to go easily, as Paige said. I also think there's a lot of people who the second that they are able to get it are going to be lining up. And that will be a force that will help get more people vaccinated in a way that we don't necessarily see with a flu vaccine, for example, where there's you know people who get it every year. But I think there aren't people who are like literally waiting until the day they're allowed to get a flu vaccine to figure out how to sign up. So there's a lot of motivation on this as well as some hesitancy. All right. Well, I, I don't want to skip. We have some non-COVID, non-transition news, um, although not too much. Uh, one overlooked tidbit last week, Canada barred the export of prescription drugs if it would create a shortage there. The new rule is in direct response to a Trump administration order allowing the import of drugs from the Great North where they are cheaper because, you know, price controls. Was this ever a realistic way to lower drug prices in the U.S., basically by stripping Canada of its supply of cheaper drugs? Well, one major issue is that Canada has a tiny fraction of the population of the United States. And so, no, they can't be our pharmacy to the north. <laughs> it's, that was never going to happen. It's been a popular idea, you know, among some on the left and right as sort of an easier shortcut than doing any kind of price regulation ourselves. But yes, it is not a sustainable <laughs> fix to our high drug price problem as you know, became more evident recently. And yet with all the focus, the early part of next year is going to be on dealing with the pandemic and the economy. But I mean, I imagine drug prices are going to continue They're Obviously, they were high up on Joe Biden's agenda when he was running. And I would think that Congress would still be interested in this issue. I mean, do we expect anything or do you think they're just going to be too swamped with other things to actually get to this? Well, like I said, I am cynical about things getting done. However, um, a lot of the drug price, you know, reform proposals would save the government a lot of money and that would then give free up money for them to do other things on health care like make Obamacare subsidies more generous or whatever. And so it could 
you know, have that additional motivation to get it done besides the fact that much of the country is struggling with high drug prices and it would be politically popular to do something. But obviously, if it were easy, it would have been done already. Yeah, I have a lot of skepticism. Again, I think this is one of these situations where Biden being the president instead of Trump being the president actually weakens the chances of legislation passing. If the Democrats retake the Senate, which, you know, is possible if uh, both of the Georgia Senate races are won by Democrats, I think this starts to become a real possibility for all the reasons that Alice said. I think if the Republicans retain control of the Senate, we've seen that the Republicans in the Senate are very reluctant to take a whack at drug pricing. You know, the, there was a bipartisan proposal that came out of the Senate Finance Committee last year that had, you you know, the sign off of Chuck Grassley, the Republican uh, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. And that proposal went nowhere because there were the leadership and also a lot of rank and file Republican senators didn't want to vote for price limitations. And I think that is with a Republican president who is very unusual in his zeal for this issue. I mean, I think Trump really wanted to do something about drug prices, uh, really wanted Congress to pass legislation on this issue. And, you know, that's also rare to have a Republican president who is really animated about uh, reducing drug prices as one of his signature issues. I think as soon as it becomes Biden as the president who is asking for this, I think the Republicans in the Senate who have been reluctant in the Trump administration, it's very hard for me to imagine them being more excited to do it then. Yeah. That's kind of my feeling, too. All right. One more this week. Um, it looks like the election of Joe Biden may have come too late to protect Planned Parenthood from being evicted from the Medicaid program in a lot of states. Uh, last week, the Fifth Circuit that covers Texas, Louisiana and Mississippi voted on bank, meaning the entire appeals court uh, group of appeals court judges, that individuals can't sue to guarantee their free choice of health provider. It's a provision of Medicaid law that has until now prevented states from defunding Planned Parenthood for from Medicaid. It's the second, the fifth is the second circuit to rule this way, although five other circuits have effectively upheld Medicaid patients' right to sue. So now we have a circuit split, which will basically force the Supreme Court to take the case. And it is hard to see this Supreme Court siding with Planned Parenthood on much of anything. Alice, is this kind of the the end for uh, Planned Parenthood in these red states? I wouldn't say it's the end, but this puts further pressure on this particular funding question to maybe go to the Supreme Court, given that we have now uh, a circuit split. We already had a circuit split on this question, and this sort of exacerbates it. And so we have a situation now where in some parts of the country, people on Medicaid can go to Planned Parenthood for non-abortion care. We should emphasize that. You know, you could never get abortion health care paid for by Medicaid, but people on Medicaid were going to Planned Parenthood for other things, um, you know, contraception, cancer screenings, you know, basic primary care, et cetera. And, and in is, a lot of these states, right. Planned Parenthood doesn't even do abortions. Right, right, right. Now, you know, the state is saying that we have the right to say that they are not a qualified provider under Medicaid. And so, again, you know, we already had a lot of disparity on this issue. This exacerbates it. And I would imagine that people who are advocates for Planned Parenthood would be pretty nervous about taking it to the Supreme Court, given its current makeup with three Trump appointees who are likely to be hostile to that issue. 
This, um, as we were saying earlier, like this would have been huge news in any other year because, you know, what you've seen over the last decade or so from these conservative states is trying to get at different ways of defunding Planned Parenthood. And so they've tried to do it through the Title X program. And then, of course, the Trump administration did that. And the courts, I believe, have largely upheld that, that they that they have they do legally have the ability to do that. But they have been repeatedly rebuffed for the most part by courts when when these states have tried to strip them out of the Medicaid program. um, and so this ruling represents, uh, I think, a major shift in in where we're at. And then, of course, remembering back in 2018, the Supreme Court was asked to hear efforts by Louisiana and Kansas trying to take Planned Parenthood out of Medicaid and rejected those appeals. But now the court, of course, is skewed more conservative with Amy Coney Barrett. So uh, it doesn't bode. I don't know how it'll turn out. But um, if I were Planned Parenthood, I wouldn't be feeling too great about it at the moment. Well, much more to watch in 2021. Um, That is as much news as we have time for this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Julie Appleby, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Julie Appleby, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. Welcome back, Julie. Thank you. So tell us about this month's patient and what happened to him. Well, Adam Woodrum is the dad, and he was out for a bike ride with his wife and kids back in July when his son, Robert, who was nine years old at the time, fell off his bike. He cut himself pretty bad, and Adam Woodrum said he could tell right away his son needed stitches. So they called an ambulance. Ambulance took him to the hospital. He got some stitches. It was a complicated kind of stitching, and they gave him some anesthesia, and now he's fine. Robert's doing fine, but... Then then, the bill came. Then the bill came. They Actually, the denial letter came in this case. Adam comes home a couple weeks later, and he's got this letter from his insurer, which is the Nevada Public Employees Benefits Program. And it says that he's got this $18,933 bill and that the whole thing had been denied. Now, I know that this is not what the story is really about, but that seems like a really big bill for stitches. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? That's a lot of money for some stitches. And and again, I think we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but these are bill charges. These are the, the highest amounts people pay because they're not negotiated down by an insurer. This is just that flat out, here's what we'd like to be paid. Normally, the insurance company would say, we're going to pay some portion of this and you're going to pay the rest. But in this case, it got rejected in its entirety. Why did that happen? Yeah, this sometimes happens. It's a complicated thing. It it involves this long word called subrogation. And basically, that's just an effort by insurers, usually health insurers, to figure out if there's another insurer that might be liable for paying the bill. And it happens, I mean, it happens in car insurance all all the the time. time. Was somebody else at fault? Um, Right. And that's exactly the case here. They wanted to know if somebody else was at fault. Was there a a car involved? Was there some other thing happening? What Adam Woodrum found a little interesting, however, is that they denied it first before even finding out if there was a third party involved in this accident. And that's where it got interesting. Yeah, because I remember, I mean, it's been a while since I had a car accident, but last time I had a car accident, it was someone else's fault. And I remember my insurance company saying, we will pay it and then you can pay your deductible and then we will subrogate it to the other company and you'll get paid back or you can go deal directly with the other company. Normally, they sort of put it to you, but they never just sort of send you the bill and say you pay it. 
Right. In this case, he got this letter and it said that his claim included these billing codes that are commonly used to treat injuries that might be related to a vehicle crash or a slip and fall accident or a workplace hazard. And it said his claim was denied and would not be reconsidered until he filled out this enclosed accident questionnaire. So he did. Now, one thing we haven't said is Woodrum is a personal injury lawyer, so he's used to this kind of thing. He deals with this with his clients who are in car accidents all the time. So while he was concerned and a little annoyed because he got this denial before anybody even asked him these questions, he kind of figured it was going to work out in the end. So he did fill out this paperwork, this accident questionnaire, and sent it back in. And um, there was nobody else at fault. His kid just fell off his bike. So that's what he said. Eventually his insurer did pay the bill. And yet it was still a pretty big bill even after the insurer paid it, right? It was still a pretty big bill. And this illustrates um, a little bit of what's going on. Yeah, the total bill ended up being 9,267 that the insurer and the Woodrums paid. The Woodrums had about 1,800 of that in deductibles and co-pays, but that's way less than the 18 grand, you know, they were initially thought they might be on the hook for. Uh, So the insurer did pay it. And in doing the research on this, It's not uncommon for hospitals, um, you know, obviously to bill or to get paid by auto insurers for cases of accidents. Now, this wasn't that didn't happen in the Woodrum's case. But if that had happened, the hospital may well have gotten a lot more towards that 18 grand that they billed because the auto insurer wouldn't have had negotiated rates, unlike the health insurer, which has negotiated rates. And then it knocked it down to the still high, but a lot less, $9,267. The auto insurer might have paid a lot closer to that 18 grand. So some medical providers may prefer uh, subrogation where an auto or a homeowner's insurance company pays the bill if they do indeed get more money. Awesome. So so what do you do as a patient uh, to not get caught in the middle of all of this? Well, first of all, don't panic, but don't necessarily pay the bill right away either. Figure out what's going on. If they've sent you an accident questionnaire, fill it out. Fill it out to the best of your ability. Say if there was another party involved or not and send it back in. Don't delay because in some cases there's a, a time limit on when you can submit something to your health insurer and the clock is ticking the day of the accident. So fill out the paperwork, send it back in, and the insurers will sort it out amongst themselves who owes what. No, hopefully uh, you'll, you'll manage not to get caught in the middle. Julie Appleby, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Paige, why don't you go first this week? Yeah, well, I have a great story actually by Alice called Biden's chief of staff has battled pandemics before. Here's how he plans to beat this one. And Alice just did a great job of kind of laying out the experience of Ron Klain, who's now going to be the chief of staff for Joe Biden. And of course, he was put in charge of responding to Ebola. What was that, 2014? seems like Mm -hmm. yesterday. That was six years ago. So (laughs) she just did a great job of kind of going through how he responded to that and kind of what he learned from those experiences. um, And then kind of the perspective that he's going to bring to the job now as he's kind of the right hand man to Biden. So I would recommend everybody take a read of that. Great. Alice. I am choosing a piece in the New York Times. Prisons are COVID-19 hotbeds. When should inmates get the vaccine? And that is a story by Roni Karen 
Rabin. And I wanted to look at this because it goes through the CDC and then states will also have a role in deciding prioritization of vaccines. But right now, it's only recommended that staff at prisons get the vaccine as a priority, uh, not the inmates, even though we've seen just mass infection and death among inmates in prisons this year. And I also saw that in Colorado, this became an issue of debate specifically. And the governor, uh, who is a Democrat, said that prisoners should not get the vaccine ahead of, you know, free people. And so this really seems like a difficult situation because it, it's it's so these people are more vulnerable and, you know, they are in there for a variety of reasons and they were not sentenced to death and should not, you know, die in prison um, from a disease that can be prevented through these measures, including vaccinations, um, but also other measures, you know, that have been inadequately um, applied in prisons. And yet, because of how our society treats this population and feels about this population, um, that has not been a priority to protect those people. And it seems like that will continue, even though uh, the risk is very high because they're in congregate settings. They're living together, packed in, you know, sometimes over capacity, sharing rooms, sharing the places where they have meals. Uh, the ventilation is very bad. They have worse uh, underlying health than the general population. And so I, I think this is a, a very difficult issue going forward. It is. Margo. I wanted to recommend an article in Science Magazine by Meredith Waldman called Public Needs to Prep for Vaccine Side Effect. You know, as I said, uh, both the Pfizer and the Moderna COVID-19 vaccines um, have come with reports of, you know, a significant percentage of people having relatively severe side effects for a vaccine. So, you know, injection site swelling, but also fevers and kind of symptoms of, of feeling sick. And this article talked to a lot of public health experts about how it's going to be really, really important for federal officials and also for doctors to just be really honest with people that like this vaccine might make you feel really sick for a day, but that just means it's working. It doesn't mean that it's given you COVID or that it's done anything wrong to you. We, you know, talked earlier about how there are people who have uh, some fears about vaccines, particularly fears about this uh, type of vaccine, which is kind of a new technology that's never been used before. And I think this article raises some really important concerns that, uh, you know, normally you want to not tell people any bad news. You want to encourage them to get the shot. But this actually seems like a situation where you want to tell them if you get really sick, that that might be normal um, and that there might also be a value in having some kind of system where they could call a nurse hotline, where they could check, where they can find out whether their reaction is one that requires medical attention or one that's kind of routine, but not to just dismiss that um, people are going to get these effects. And there's a quote from an immunologist at the University of Pennsylvania named Drew Weissman that I thought really was memorable, where he said, the companies just have to warn people, this is what you need to expect. Take a Tylenol and suck it up for a day. <laughs> yeah, well, my story is from ProPublica, and it's called States with Few Coronavirus Restrictions Are Spreading the Virus Beyond Their Borders. It's by David Armstrong, and it's about exactly what the headline says, how one state or locality's strict COVID rules are being thwarted by a lax neighbors. I've actually been thinking about this a lot since I live in a place that has pretty strict rules and has retained pretty strict rules, but is seeing a lot of spread now because the rules right around us are not so strict. There's a wonderful quote from the story that says, this incongruous approach 
and the lack of national standards have created confusion, conflict, and a muddled public health message, likely hampering efforts to stop the spread of the virus. So maybe we'll get a more national response at some point. We can only hope. All right, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay even when we are in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Margo? At Sanger Katz. Paige? At PW underscore Cunningham. Alice? At Alice Wallstein. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>